0: Hey everybody, welcome to yet another lecture, video lecture. Week eight, the spring term is almost over and we only have a few more of these lectures to go. Uh, So instead of talking about it, I'm just gonna jump right in. Of course, have to note day 68 on the uh, self-quarantine count, excuse me. Cord on the floor there, Uh, still in my dining room with the chalkboard after all these days. Uh, Today's topic is the second in our exploration my exploration with the iPhone, and you watching and listening, of the Marxist-Leninist critique of liberalism. Last time was the Marxist-Leninist critique of political liberalism, and today is the Marxist-Leninist critique of economic liberalism. And just to review and to kind of give a running start, uh, the critique of political liberalism, basically the idea that the liberal democratic state, the rights-protecting state, that is democratic uh, uh, as a method of having an external check on the power of the state, um, is, uh, from the point of view of liberalism, a uh, necessary extension, a rational expression of uh, individual sovereignty. And from the Marxist-Leninist point of view is a, um, essentially a sham, it's a lie, it's, it's a, a, an ideological story told to justify the underlying eco- set of economic arrangements, which is the capitalist mode of production. Um, and uh, economic liberalism, is the idea that some of the important rights are freedom of exchange and accumulation of wealth. Uh, Economic liberalism focuses on these features of the broader liberal picture of what rights are. And so uh, economic liberals don't say, well, there's not also the right to freedom of opinion and freedom of speech and freedom of religion. more broadly, but the point is, is that when we take a look at the economic system itself, there's a set of rights that are a subset of the broader liberal set of rights that are that are very important to acknowledge, and that not only do we have to acknowledge that they are central to uh, what the what, what the exercise of individual sovereignty is, they are also good because they contribute to a productive, innovative, uh, fast-growing economic system, and that that innovative, fast-growing economic system creates more and more resources for individuals to use to pursue their conception of the good. Um, So uh, economic liberalism is connected with the broader liberal picture of essentially uh, respecting and um, uh, um, admiring and uh, moving towards, um, what's the word, I don't wanna say uh, worshiping, but I would say from the Marxist-Leninist point of view, yes, worshiping the sovereign individual. Free exchange and accumulation of wealth are all that's needed to uh, satisfy economic liberalism. Capitalism, as a broader economic system, uh, where there are certain productive forces uh, that are utilized and certain arrangements, certain uses of that accumulated wealth, certain kinds of free exchanges that are more common. In other words, the free exchange of labor on the labor market and free exchange of goods and services on the, in the market for uh, goods and services, um, that's capitalism. Capitalism is the application of accumulated wealth uh, via a system of free exchange to increase productivity. Now, Marx is going to be attacking economic liberalism, but what he's also more broadly uh, attacking is capitalism itself. So these are essentially the rights, these are capitalist rights. The system of capitalism can't work without these rights being uh, protected and well-defined. Uh, and one of the things that uh, is a source of dispute among uh, economic liberals is, well, what rights, what specific rules are needed to make sure that we have free exchanges? And uh, how can we make sure that wealth can be accumulated by respecting essentially the exchange, the outcomes of these free exchanges? Because free exchange leads to uh, inequalities in, in wealth and uh, economic we, we need to let them accumulate because they respect the free choices of sovereign individuals. Um, but uh, what does it take to make sure that exchanges are free? Uh, some economic liberals are very far down on the laissez-faire spectrum where there's like very little, very little. And others say, well, there's a bulkier set of government uh, policies and actions and enforcements and rules that are necessary to make sure that exchanges are free, right? So do we need product labeling, for example? Um, Today, in the 21st century, most economic liberals will accept that product labeling is a kind of a necessary... uh, Feature of government regulation to ensure free exchange because if you don't have product labeling then there's going to be asymmetries in information between the two parties and you might end up with an exchange that isn't really free. You think you're buying a whole grain uh, organic bread because that's what it says on the package but there are no regulations that make sure that the words on a package actually are backed up with the reality of it so it's not really a free exchange. A um, hundred years ago there was a more vigorous debate Among economic liberals, as to whether, like you know, uh, say product safety or packaging requirements, uh, label requirements were necessary government actions in order to ensure free exchange. Uh, Throughout the course of the last century or so, the set of government rules that have become acceptable by by consensus among economic liberals has gotten larger. But there's still a wide range of uh, thoughts about how much the government needs to do. Um, The so the state. The economically liberal state can actually be relatively, uh, it's not extensive because it doesn't do a lot. It protects these two things, but it may be involved in a lot of activities because doing this might actually require an awful lot. And certainly protecting the accumulation of wealth requires a large regime of property rights that need to be uh, um, defined and uh, protected. I mean, for example, copyrights. I mean, that's a very, go- governments actually get involved directly in uh, sort of part of the economy by. Uh, um, by uh, giving out and protecting copyrights and punishing copyright infringement, all in the name, that's a very action oriented part of government activity to protect the accumulation of wealth. Copyrights are seen as an important part of that. So, the realm of government action under the economic liberal system might be small in terms of the list, but the number of functions, the number of specific things the government do, could actually be large. Uh, could be long and the the government could play a large role. Of course, all economic liberals are uh, interested in making sure that (coughs) only the very minimal amount (coughs) of government intervention is uh, achieved. That minimal amount, that floor, could be high, but economic liberals say, well, once we figure out what that floor is, we can't go above that floor. We can't do other things. The government can't be used to achieve other economic goals besides protecting these economic rights. Um, and what's more important is that the government doesn't get involved in production at all, right? The government is not the government protects capitalist rights, but doesn't involve itself in the system of capitalism itself. Um, so, there, but there is more to capitalism than the capitalist rights. There is a system of uh, uh, wage uh, labor is the labor system, and that's a different type of system than uh, in previous uh, modes of production uh, and. Um, the, of course, the uh, wage labor system is connected to free exchange. One of the f- exchanges that's seen as central to be protected and made sure that uh, there are, there's minimal regulation around it is uh, the labor market. Right? One of the fundamental things that we as human beings do is sell our time and movement of our bodies and energy for uh, money. That's a, f- that's a common form of free exchange. Capitalism has as its core the wage labor uh, system. It also has as its core um, the concept of private investment in uh, production with the purpose of securing profits. So these are capitalist rights. Capitalism itself is not reducible to capitalist rights. Capitalist rights are, uh, from the point of view of an economic liberal, essential to ensuring the liberal uh, economic system. From the point of view of capitalism, and this is where I think Marx pointed out, these rights are essential to making sure that this particular mode of production can go down the way that the uh, economically ruling class wants it to go down. In other words, the capitalist class needs these rights protected and also needs the government and wants the government to stay uh, within the uh, realm of only protecting these rights and not doing more. Um, so, uh, the, in, what, what doesn't happen, capitalists don't want this, uh, is they don't want the government getting involved in uh, taxation to invest. Uh, productivity will be taken care of, innovation will be taken care of in the free market where the profit motive drives uh, uh, decision making. So, capitalism itself has a bunch of other features. One is a wage labor system and that, of course, is connected to the to the uh, free exchange. Um, it also um, has a profit motive-driven uh, mode of production. The way that, that production and investment decisions are made is based on profits, instead of, for example, um, a uh, a, uh, a quality-driven system where you say, okay, well, we're gonna we're going to make investment decisions. Is so that we can maximize uh, equality. This is this system uh, maximizes the profit motive, and it's also based on rational decision making and self-interested individuals. Um, The profit motive is connected to the self-interested individuals, but everybody is making free exchanges with uh, the idea that they're going to uh, maximize their self-interest. And this connects up with the broader liberal picture of individual sovereignty because what this says is that what you do as an individual is you use your individual, your instrumental rationality to try to uh, uh, make decisions that will give you more resources for pursuing and achieving your conception of the good. This stuff is all kind of the economically manifested version of that broader sense of individual sovereignty. And then, economic liberals are uh, pro-capitalist by uh, sort of by by uh, definition, because what capitalism wants is these rights to uphold all of this stuff, right? So, capitalist rights uphold this system. Economic liberals, though, don't have to be pro-capitalist in the sense that they're going to participate in the capitalist system uh, or that they think we all need to be profit motive driven or that we all need to be fully self interested um, or that we all need to uh, um, make rational decisions. They're not advocating any of that stuff. Capitalists, however, are. They're essentially advocating not just the protection of these rights, but the participation, the willing and gleeful participation in the capitalist mode of of production, right? So, um, profit motive driven is, I think, the biggest feature of it. Now, uh, one of the things about Marx that I mentioned last time is that uh, he was one of the first true scientific economists. In fact, he might even have been the very first uh, scientific economist. Somebody who actually says, okay, let's look at the economic system that exists. Uh, The capitalist system is the economic system that existed when he started looking at it. Let's look at the the economic system as it exists and talk about how it works and analyze it scientifically. Now, one of the reasons why that made Marx different than other economists is because prior to Marx, uh, economists were not scientific in this sense, that they were essentially pro-capitalist philosophers. They They were saying, let's look at the capitalist system and see what's good about it. Or let's see what's natural about it, or let's see what connects up with something that's true about human beings, like the fact that capitalist rights are a subset of, of uh, liberal rights. Um, pro-capitalist economists, from Adam Smith forward, uh, and they're still, you know, they're still around, are not scientists. They're essentially philosophers of a system, and they're making a normative analysis and a normative argument. And Marx is actually just saying, like. Let's an economy is a human system that operates according to certain laws that are that develop over time and transform as human beings transform the productive landscape and as human beings' relationship to the earth and the resources available uh, grows and develops with uh, technological innovation and uh, um, as well as uh, you know transformations in in the way that people conceive of how they organize production. Uh, that let's look at this system scientifically. And one of the things about Marx is that he is not an anti-capitalist in his analysis of capitalism. He's not the antithesis of the pro-capitalist uh, economists. And even calling them economists is, is, is really, they're really econo-philosophers. Adam Smith is an econo-philosopher. David Ricardo is an econo-philosopher. Jeremy Bentham, an econo-philosopher. They're looking at the economy as an expression of their sort of social philosophy, as one more element of how it is that humans should organize themselves. Marx isn't going to ask the should question. He gets to should later, and he does become an advocate for a different economic system and a different political system. The critique of political and economic liberalism is pointed towards an alternative, um, and so Marx does go from being an analyst to being an advocate. But in both of these lectures that I'm doing uh, for this particular course, I'm, I'm wanting to focus us more on the analyst side. Uh, So one of the things that's interesting about Marx as an analyst of capitalism is that he's not an anti-capitalist. He is, in fact, somebody who's going to look at capitalism and say, okay, what does capitalism do? And when we look at what capitalism does, we're going to be able to see that capitalism does certain things really well and capitalism does other things really poorly. And ultimately, Marx is going to say, one of the things that capitalism does is it destroys itself. Uh, And the sort of built-in contradiction of capitalism is that it's a system of rational decision-making that is itself irrational, right? It asks for individuals to make rational decisions to maximize their self-interest um, and when they freely exchange, they're, doing, uh, they're, they're attempting to make their situation better through these exchanges. And it's an entire system that's built on a particular kind of economic behavior, essentially rational individualism. Uh, and what that system does is that system produces two things simultaneously. This is Marx, Marx's uh, analysis of capitalism, is that what is the result of capitalism? It produces massive wealth and productivity. This is where Marx is actually not an anti capitalist. He looks at capitalism and says capitalism is extraordinary. It is the most productive mode of production in human history. Marshaling human capacities to transform natural resources into things that will satisfy human wants and needs. Unparalleled in human history is capitalism, it produces massive wealth and productivity. And he acknowledges that it does so through the combination of these features. Right? The profit motive combined with a wage labor system where uh, uh, workers and in, uh, owners, both, both classes, are making rational decisions attempting to maximize their self interest, is going to produce massive wealth and productivity. And so one of the things that Marx actually does is he provides a more scientific analysis to that supports the conclusion of the pro-capitalist econo philosophers who say capitalism is awesome because it does exactly this. But they're really more cheerleaders and normative philosophers than they are uh, economists. So uh, Marx actually puts modern economics on a scientific footing, or he you know creates modern economics uh, and part of what he sees is just this insane productivity. And he hadn't even seen anything yet. Like, the, the productive forces that are unleashed by a capitalist system as seen from the middle of the 19th century are kind of, you know, quaint compared to the productive forces that were seen by the middle of the 20th century and definitely that are seen by the beginning of the 21st century. Um, so, but Marx acknowledges, he's like, what capitalism does is it unleashes... And makes possible massive leaps forward in the hundred years before he wrote. That really was the lifespan of capitalism. May, maybe even shorter than hundred years. He's writing in the mid 1800s. Capitalism really, you know, is larval in the mid 1700s. Uh, but in the in the less than a century of capitalism's existence, it has uh, increased human productive capacity uh, more than the previous five thousand years combined. And and Marx is he's. He's astounded by it, and, he, and as I say, it's kind of quaint. He hadn't even seen anything yet. Um, but what he did see was also, at the same time, it produces massive wealth uh, and productivity, and it produces uh, huge inequalities and misery. And the misery is mostly experienced by the people who are themselves the driving engine of uh, this productivity, the workers, right? So the the misery is not equally distributed. It's it's highly unequal and that's what creates the misery is that there are some very few people, those who are involved in this aspect of capitalism, uh, the profit uh, profit motive driven investment and production decisions. um, And Marx respects their rationality and he understands also that when you have a capitalist system that's protected by uh, the government, that the there's there's really no avoiding the profit motive, um, and what happens is you if you don't pursue the profit motive as an investor, someone else is going to pursue the profit motive, and they're going to eat your lunch and gobble you up and buy you out or send you bankrupt. Marx also acknowledged the fact that like the basically the capitalist class, when capitalist rights are protected, when this system is legally protected, that. There's no choice but to act in that way. If you don't do it, somebody else will. And so, and some people will not do it, right? You could be born into a wealthy family uh, of bankers or steel magnets and say, you know what, I'm not gonna pursue the profit motive. But what you do is you then drop out of the capitalist class. You're no longer relevant to it. And somebody else is glad to take your place either from the outside, who claws their way in, and there are a few success stories of that, or somebody else from the inside. Um, But it produces massive inequality, massive wealth, but the wealth is distributed unequally, and the misery all falls on the shoulders of the people who are actually the engine of it, at least from Marx's point of view, uh, which is the workers. The wage-labor system produces massive uh, output of goods and services, and yet the built-in, rational, uh, profit-driven, self-interested incentives Push down wages, and so as workers get more productive, and this is the thing that's kind of uh, super irrational about this whole system, is that um, as workers get more productive, they themselves are increasingly immiserated. And immiserated is an English translation of whatever the German word is that that Marx used, but uh, it's kind of an awkward word, but it really, I think it conveys what happens. Um, So what we have here is we have a fundamentally contradictory system. It produces two things that go in opposite directions. And, you know, if you want to use normative terms, if you want to label these with judgments, you call this good. And this is the good side of capitalism. And Marx, uh, in many people's hands, they ignore this side of it. But Marx was like, capitalism is good at this. It's actually not good at it. It's great at productivity. Um, And, but it also creates something that goes against it, something that's extremely bad, right? That's connected. Like, these two things are connected. You can't have one with the other. In the capitalist system, the wealth and productivity is uh, produced by this combination of features that uh, itself also must lead to massive inequality, right? And the, p- part of what the, the economic liberals are going to say and the pro-capitalist, uh, you know, apologist, uh, econo-philosophers is that this good thing is what we should judge the capitalist system by. And this part of it is just the cost of doing business, right? It's not bad. Now, even if Marx himself chose not to judge that this is, that this is good and this is bad and that uh, the bad outweighs the good or that they're evenly balanced, um, what he is going to say is that the reason why this is a problem is because it creates a central irrationality. It's not just contradictory. It's an irrational system that itself is rational Based on rational decision making, but it's irrational because the people who are the driving force of this productivity are the ones who are making themselves worse off. So the, the progressive, uh, increasing productivity of the working class and its increasing miseration is irrational from the point of view of that class. And as capitalism proceeds, and again, Marx hadn't seen anything yet, but he saw a pretty good version of like pretty good version of this. The wealth inequality gets farther and farther apart. And what happens to the capitalist system is that because of this, right, it sows the seeds of its own destruction. This is essentially the Marxist-Leninist critique of economic liberalism, is that it's not a sustainable political-economic arrangement. It's going to destroy itself, and the reason why it's going to destroy itself is because it's contradictory and irrational but it also and this is the this is this is the part that historically sort of got definitely left behind in the practice of marxism leninism Um, it is from marx's point of view it's a necessary step forward to a new kind of economic system that Uh, socialism which is uh, based on a different set of premises right it's not based on a wage labor system it's basically based on a uh, free labor system it's not profit motive driven it's centrally it's a centrally planned economy the rational decision-making is not individual rational decision-making it's collectively rational decision-making to how uh, about how to make investments and how to use productivity from Marx's point of view all of that stuff can only happen Once an economy, once a nation's economy, or the global economy, but Marx did focus more on nations, uh, has become productive enough, massive wealth, that those features of an economy, a socialist economy, can be implemented without uh, itself creating misery. Uh, Which is to say that these things, the thing about capitalism is that all of these things happen with no social costs. No social inputs, I should say. And that's one of the things that the pro-capitalist philosophers are saying is that the system of production doesn't need to be coordinated. This is the invisible hand idea, is that just let people, protect people's individual rights, and let people make rational, self-interested decisions, the biggest one of which is, is seeking profits, um, but also the other one of which is selling your labor on the labor market. Um, those are both uh, needed. No coordination is needed for us to get a massively productive economy. And that is correct. Uh, and again, Marx accepts that, cor- that, that claim. And in fact, he analyzes it and looks at why it is the case that when you put these features together, you get massive wealth and productivity. He's actually way more uh, systematic than most uh, 19th century economists at looking at capitalism. So he's not an anti-capitalist. He's an analyst of Capitalist, which is sounds very close, but he comes to the conclusion that it's sowing the seeds of his own destruction, and also it's horrible, right? It's, it, it creates all this misery, and it doesn't just create misery, it creates misery on the backs of the people who are doing the good thing, right? If Capitalism created a bunch of misery for people who were not contributing to its productivity, then maybe it would be you know, more morally neutral. But from Marx's point of view, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a deep irony and also a horrible uh, crime against the working class that <clears throat> the working class is <coughs> driving this giant engine of productivity and being gra- su- successfully and pro- progressively ground down by the very engine that it's making more and more powerful. But the pro-capitalists say, well, there's no social inputs that are needed. And if we're going to have social inputs... What social inputs are going to do is they're going to divert productive resources. They're going to divert time, energy, uh, intelligence, uh, natural resources. <coughs> they're going to divert those to coordination, and the capital system will coordinate for free. So why would you spend resources trying to coordinate if the capital system will coordinate for free? Well, Marx's answer, and this, as I say, this answer gets lost uh, pretty early in the sort of political success of Marxism-Leninism and I think Lenin himself is kind of responsible for it because he hastens the revolution in a place that really isn't a capitalist country. Russia is not a capitalist country. It's, an, it's a place where there's a, an available revolution, basically. Same thing with China, same thing with Cuba. Uh, the, all of the places where communism has come, there was an available revolution and Marxist-Leninist revolutionaries who wanted to build a socialist economy took advantage of those conditions. But for Marx, uh, the story has to go, capitalism raising itself to a high level of productivity so that what can replace it is a socialist economy. And basically what the socialist economy consists of is central planning of production and distribution. So the state in the stage of transformation from, uh, from the capitalist economic liberal system becomes a communist state where the state owns the means of production. It, it, it appropriates the means of production from private owners, uh, which is what capitalism uh, centers around is private owners driven by profit. The state appropriates the means of production and coordinates production to uh, not uh, maximize individual self-interest but to maximize... Uh, equality, and security, and uh, social participation, and, uh, and, and so decisions are made for very different reasons, decisions are made for an equality, it's an equality uh, motive as opposed to a profit motive, and the distribution, and Lenin actually gives this, the, the phrase, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that's the fundamental distribution principle. The the production principle is how do we coordinate social resources and social productive capacities to be able to manufacture uh, as much goods and services as possible uh, collectively, not individually, right? And then we will distribute those. Now, one of the reasons why Marx thinks capitalism needs to come before socialism is that this, this has no social inputs. Central planning has a high level of social input. In order to centrally plan production and distribution, that's costly in terms of productive resources. One of the primary productive resources is human resources. Um, If you're going to centrally plan an economy, there have been various pro-socialist and even pro-capitalist economists who have uh, sort of taken a stab at estimating what uh, amount of productive resources would be necessary to dedicate towards central planning. And the number that I kind of see the most is roughly... Uh, to, uh, a quarter to a third of productive resources go into the central planning of production and distribution. Capitalism does it for free. So under capitalism, 100% of available human and natural uh, resources uh, are uh, uh, human human labor and human-made like machines and factories uh, and ideas and natural resources that get converted. 100% of uh, resources, minus the tiny bit that's needed to be shaved off to fund the state and protect uh, the economic rights as well as the personal rights like freedom of uh, speech and freedom of religion. Um, but some very small percentage needs to get shaved off, and we keep that as small as possible. So essentially, capitalism is a system that runs for free. Uh, the, co- the cost of it is this, <laughs> right? It doesn't run for free. It runs with no social inputs, but it runs on essentially the misery that it produces. Socialism transfers the cost of that misery into social inputs and productive resources, and somewhere between a quarter and a third of labor, power, innovation, and physical resources are needed to sustain the centrally planning, the central planning bureaucracy. Um, What that means is that in order for society to not Uh, sink into a different kind of misery is a high level of productivity. So capitalism sows the seeds of its own destruction, but it also creates the preconditions for socialism. The productive precondition for socialism. Socialism is an expensive economic system in terms of actual physical inputs and what you get for that expensive input of social inputs is you get the value of a society where we don't have a bunch of misery. We get the value of a society where the people who are actually the engine of productivity, the workers, uh, uh, become better off instead of worse off. Um, And what we get is we get liberation from the Uh, productive toil, which has uh, characterized human society since the uh, beginning of the Neolithic Revolution, since humans stopped being hunter-gatherers. And even when they were hunter-gatherers, that is is the primal uh, mode of production, where you just hunt and gather. There's a lot of toil. Uh, Socialism releases human beings from the thing that has characterized their productive relationship to the world, the entirety of human history, which is uh, toil. Um, And it does so, though, based on the massive productivity that capitalism provides for it. Um, So the, the way that Marx foresaw this happening, right, capitalism develops out of feudalism, and this set of Economic principles that the pro-capitalist econo philosophers, uh, starting with Adam Smith, are promoting um, was essentially an alternative. It was a revolutionary alternative, right? We even have the term industrial revolution. And then there's the capitalist revolution. These were revolutions that, that were not political revolutions where there was fighting and bloodshed and territory and uh, control of political structures. But there was a lot of conflict and a lot of transformation. And a lot of, there was actually both violence and nonviolence involved in the transformation of the economic system to function according to these principles. right? Uh, because the feudal economic system is actually based not on the wage uh, labor system, not based on any of this stuff. It's based on uh, a uh, an, uh, the idea of an organic social hierarchy and on workers being tied to a place. The wage labor system is all about labor mobility and free freedom of exchange. The feudal system isn't uh, at all like that. Um, it's not based on free exchange at all. It's based on uh, um, uh, mutual obligations, uh, such as... You know, and they're definitely unequal mutual obligations, right? The peasant toils away to provide the uh, material resources for the for the great standard of living of the Lord, and the Lord provides protection and some kind of identity and meaningfulness to the peasants. It's definitely very unequal. But capitalism itself has to achieve a revolution. This is this is Marx Marx's view to in order to make these the dominant principles of the economy. And one of the things that is kind of amazing about capitalism from the from Marx's point of view when he was looking back only a century ago is how swiftly that revolution is achieved and one of the handbags of that revolution is uh, the uh, it, political liberalism, is it, it, just liberalism in general, right? The political liberalism, which then gives birth to economic liberalism, it's one of the handbagens, it's the ideological superstructure, to reference the terminology from last time, it's the ideological superstructure that grows up very quickly to justify this rapid transformation from a feudal system of production to a capitalist system of production, um, which couldn't be any more different. And Marx is saying, well, yeah, the socialist economy is very different from the capitalist economy. The driving principle is different from the driving principles. And yes, the level of cost is different, right? This, this system has <clears throat> very little social inputs. Uh, but of course, and I've said this already, so I shouldn't say no social inputs, though I'm going to leave it here. It has the tiniest sliver, right? Because whatever percentage has to be skimmed to fund the uh, liberal democratic uh, capitalist rights protecting state is a necessary expense, but it's small. So it's essentially free. Uh, Here, this is going to be an expensive system to maintain, just like feudalism was an expensive system to maintain. And actually capitalism is expensive too, it's just expensive in misery, it's not expensive in resources. So all of these economic systems are essentially, in different ways, expensive to maintain. Um, It's just that the expense gets shipped around. Where does the expense fall? Who bears the brunt of the expense? Well, that's where the class struggle that I talked about last time. The dominant class is able to reap the either all or most of the benefits with little of the expense. Right? So the massive wealth and productivity, where does that go? That goes to the capitalist class. The uh, misery, where does that go? That goes to the working class. Now, Marx is saying that we need to have this before we can get here because this cost has to be able to be born without producing a different kind of misery and this is exactly in fact what happened in the places where a socialist economy was imposed where there wasn't capitalism sowing the seeds of its own destruction but an opportunity for a revolution. Uh, Essentially really agrarian Uh, Pre-capitalist societies, like Russia and China and Cuba and uh, um, uh, uh, um, Vietnam, these are not places, Marx thought that socialism would come, the communist revolution would have to come to places that were advanced capitalist countries. He was lying in Germany. Great Britain and the United States as the places that would most likely because they had achieved part of what the part of what has to happen is this irrationality has to has to get so bad it has to get to a peak where the working class as Marx says at the end of the communist manifesto the working class has nothing to lose but its chains right essentially the misery is so acute that even the prospect of a violent death in a, in a political revolution to bring a socialist uh, economy, it seems like it might, you know a, a better thing than continuing in this downward spiral of toil and misery. In reality, what happens is, there's a revolutionary opportunity in non-capitalist countries, and these Marxist-Leninist revolutionaries take that opportunity, and they implement some version of a socialist economy And they pay the high level of social input to do a centrally planned uh, form of production and distribution, but there's not enough productivity and wealth to be able to sustain this without creating a different kind of misery. And the misery will fall also, it's a similar kind of misery where it's a lack of, uh, a lack of material uh, um, goods, but it will similarly fall on the working class, on the working people. It won't fall on the bureaucrats, right? The, so, in reality, what happens with uh, the socialist revolutions is they replace one form of binary class struggle, the capitalist versus the proletariat, with another form of, of uh, binary class struggle, which is the bureaucrats who are doing this and uh, the workers. Now, the misery that the workers have is a different kind of misery. Um, And and part of what happens is even the countries that don't have enough wealth to really do this well, um, people are freed from certain kinds of uh, uh, misery. So, for example, in a socialist economy, everybody there's no homelessness. Uh, Everybody is provided with a there's no unemployment either. There's everybody's provided with a job and a basic level of sustenance and a home. And so that form of toil and that form of insecurity and that form of misery that exists under capitalism doesn't exist. But the, in the countries that had socialist uh, uh, political revolutions that then implemented a socialist economy that wasn't productive enough to make sure there was enough to go around so that, so that all the misery of capitalism, or at least the vast majority of it, was, was eliminated, they couldn't provide the workers' paradise that Marx thought would be next, right? We needed the productive preconditions for socialism. Most countries, or not most, all of the countries that had socialist revolutions essentially skipped this Essential step. So, what would the story be, and why, why is it that socialism is not just a utopian desire uh, to, tr- to sort of transcend the misery that capitalism produces? Why is it actually something that is, in Marx's view, inevitable, right? It, capitalism actually sows the seeds of its own destruction, it creates the, pr- the productive preconditions for a new system, which then this system will liberate humans from toil. And pr- tr- profoundly transform human beings' relationship to productivity. Um, prior to the socialist uh, planned uh, economy, humans are always toiling and never getting quite to the place that, where they can actually be free to uh, um, be creative individuals and to do all the things that liberalism kind of promises. There's no, conce- there's no conceiving of and pursuing your conception of the good under capitalism. For Marx, the, the liberal dream of essentially free, creative, uh, unexploited individuals is the socialist paradise, um, and but he's saying it's more than just a good thing, a better thing than the, than the liberal capitalist world. He's saying it's inevitable, right? Why? Where does the inevitability come from? Well, um, part of it is just this 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 combination, this contradiction, and this irrationality is that as society gets more wealthy, the Vast majority of people, those who are actually producing that wealth, become more miserable. Um, There, there are other features of it that actually uh, sort of hasten the revolution. Um, The a a big part of the process of capitalism's remaking of society is that it um, uh, it creates urbanization, right? So these things produce a number of things, right? They produce urbanization. They also produce the loosening of, uh, commun- of traditional uh, social ties. They also produce uh, ma- like the site, the very visible site of uh, massive wealth. So they produce visible wealth. The combination of these three things is what Marx thinks will lead inevitably to a revolution. Um, the visible wealth, I, mean, I won't necessarily go in the order that I listen, but the visible wealth part is this, is that if you're miserable and you look around and everybody else around you is miserable, it's very easy to take that for just the way things are, but if you're miserable and Most of the people around you are miserable, but some of the people are extremely well-off, extremely happy, uh, and you can see them, then that highlights your condition of misery. Right, human beings are very uh, adaptable, flexible types of beings. Um, we can adjust to all kinds of, of uh, levels of comfort and discomfort, and then normalize them. Right, it's, it's actually part of our sort of hardwired uh, psychology, and and that's actually one of the things of, about capitalism that makes it so kind of endlessly uh, voracious and uh, um, um, uh, unsatisfiable. Is that as society becomes more productive, what used to be wants now become needs, right? Like you know. 200 years ago, people wanted indoor plumbing, and some of them had it. Well, not 200 years ago, 150 years ago. Um, now it's basically a need, right? Um, if, you, if you could take me back 300 years and make me uh, king of uh, a powerful nation, but I wouldn't have indoor plumbing, I wouldn't have access to a toilet or a refrigerator, I'd be like, yeah, I, I don't know, right? Um, we've gotten used to a certain level of things, but the, the visible wealth uh, actually undercuts that human adaptability. People can adapt to misery. Right? and one of the things about the feudal system that protected it from transformation for so long was that most people who were toiling and were miserable they could you know they didn't actually see they could some of them could see the castle or whatever it was but many of them couldn't but they couldn't see inside the castle and they didn't really know uh, what was going on they didn't have the information to be able to say this sucks and it doesn't need to suck the visible wealth that is produced by capitalism makes the, uh, the, the sufferers of this misery able to understand that their misery is in fact unnecessary because it is not shared and there's a possibility. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a standard of living that's right there in front of them. Now this is where this connects with urbanization, which is one, when you have a highly urbanized society. The wealth and the misery are right there, like side by side. And cities, uh, cities are a little less like this now. A lot of the misery has been kind of outsourced to the suburbs and the exurbs. Um, but uh, the, you know, in 19th century cities, were, uh when Marx was writing, the wealth and the misery and poverty were like were were physically side by side. Um, so these two things connect up. Urbanization also throws workers together. In a way that a uh, less productive less industrialized economic system did not peasants toiled largely in isolation from each other they had that they were connected to deeply connected to small communities and so they could see other people around them so it wasn't as though they were completely atomized and separated um, but they didn't necessarily see the larger pattern no one there was no mobility people didn't move around there weren't large groups of others to see like hey we're all miserable and then but does that small group of people like is totally happy based on our toil? What's what what the f is up with that? Right. Part of what urbanization does is it brings together workers who can then actually like talk about their shared misery and see it. And then urbanization makes people even more miserable. It's it, it, it's a it's a it's a contribution to this misery. Capitalism requires urbanization because the most efficient form of productivity is to bring large groups of workers together in factories and to have as little resources as possible getting them back and forth from home. So urbanization, tenement system, all of that stuff is deeply connected with the profit motive driven uh, system. And then when we have a system of ownership of land and of buildings that is also itself profit motive driven, that's where we get tenements and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, substandard housing that is you know very inexpensive, but horrible, uh, and it's in, and it has to be inexpensive because the workers' wages are being driven downward by the profit motive, even though their productivity is going up. So it's this sort of continuous spiral of greater and greater misery, and it brings more and more people together, um, who share their misery, and now their numbers are big, and they can actually look around and say, "Wait a minute, this is all of us, and there's just a few of them," uh, whereas. Peasants were largely dispersed, and they, in fact, the difference between uh, there they had hoes and rakes, and the lords had horses and 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 swords and lances and, and armor. Um, I'm sort of simplifying, but you, but I think you get the picture. Uh, but they, they're like, yeah, you know, it's like. If they ever did think us versus them, uh, which I'm sure, which they definitely did all the time, their work hasn't revolts, and there was definitely a lot of dissatisfaction, it didn't seem like there was much you could do about it. When you have urbanization, and visible wealth, and uh, essentially the workers themselves are uh, um, going to be able to recognize, like, wow, we really, like, there's way, way more of us. We are a dangerous force. Now, historically, and this is part of the critique really this is more of, the, of uh, um, the, the, the historical critique of political liberalism and less the philosophical critique, what ends up happening is that the liberal democratic state becomes hypocritical about its own values and, you, and, and the capitalist class uses the, the liberal democratic state to uh, suppress any kind of uh, um, attempts by the working class to transform the wage labor system to transform the profit motive driven uh, form of investment to make their lives less miserable. So they're basically, the the state becomes more clearly a tool of the ruling class, and it doesn't have to abide by its own values or principles. It doesn't, it it won't, right? It'll it'll, it'll throw principles out the door before it throws out using this powerful tool um, to suppress the word class. But it's more and more necessary, and this is part of the reason why it sows the seeds of its own destruction, is that the the, po- the, political, uh, the, the, the uh, liberal democratic state will have to do more, will have to exercise more power, will actually have to take more social inputs than the minimal taxation to just protect rights, will ha- have to use more and more social resources and become more brutal and more hypocritical, more openly, visibly hypocritical. It will act more clearly as a tool of the ruling class to keep this unequal distribution and not just to protect capitalist rights, even though it'll always tell that story. And then through culture and through control over uh, uh, over propaganda and messaging, we'll continue to tell the story, the liberal, uh, the liberal story that is in Marx's view for the terms from last time, the false consciousness, right? So there'll be actual repression and there'll be this dissemination of this false consciousness. But the uh, increasing misery, the increasing urbanization, uh, the increasing wealth that becomes visible to this growing group of highly immiserated people is going to produce conditions that require greater and greater uh, crackdown and greater hypocrisy on the part of the liberal democratic state so that's part of the downward spiral that marx sees as being totally inevitable the loosening of the traditional social ties partly is connected to the urbanization right when you're when when you are when you leave a community that has essentially been where you, your family has been for generations and you feel connected and have those ties and you feel connected to the sort of what you would call the natural social order, the loosening of traditional social ties actually makes room for the loss of this false consciousness. Um, and for the, the, uh, um, the replacement of ideas about where you belong and what uh, place you deserve to play in the world and why you deserve the misery and the inequality that you're facing, um, those are all scraped away. So the workers not only uh, have less and less to lose by revolting materially, right? Um, in some cases, death would be preferable to the kind of horrible lives that they're living, but they also have less and less to lose uh, normatively. So they're not like, oh, but you know, my self-identity is that I'm, uh, you know, I, I recognize that I'm a child of God and God set up the social order where we're going to have unequal places and each person occupies this place in this organic whole. When those ideas get scraped out, there's, there's no reason because capitalist rights don't serve the working class. It's cl- they're supposed to, right, and they're upheld in theory for all sovereign individuals, and a, per- a worker in the wage labor system is a sovereign individual, right? They're, d- with as little as they have, basically just their bodies and their energy and their, and, and their, and, and their time, they can pursue their self-interest rationally, um, but they just don't get much for it. So, these capitalist rights aren't that compelling, so that's why culture is used so strongly uh, to reinforce this false consciousness, because as traditional social ties uh, are loosened, and they were loosened very quickly within this, the, the span of, a, of like one generation and maybe two generations at most in the late uh, 18th and early 19th centuries, uh, the, you know, the pro-capitalist econo-philosophers are trying to say, well, the real social ties are, are, are unified allegiance to the sovereign individual. What's really happening is that why? Like, why would I embrace capitalist rights? Why would I embrace economic liberalism? This this system doesn't serve me, right? Yeah, it serves massive productivity and wealth. If you even you know, if you even buy that argument, which it was true, and that you know, workers can buy the idea that capitalism is massively productive. But like, why? What good does it do me? Why should I contribute to a massively productive system if that massively productive system is actually going to make me make me more miserable, right? If I'm a self-interested individual. That doesn't make any sense. That's ir- that's actually irrational to uh, to adhere to that. So all of these conditions uh, contribute in a in a kind of a downward spiral to the development of what these do is contribute to the development of a revolutionary consciousness. And what what it really is is you know Marx's critique of political liberalism is part of helping along the revolutionary consciousness. Um, it, it is a way of actually just directly saying political liberalism is a false consciousness that serves only to keep you exploited and subservient. Um, so acknowledge it for that and cast it aside. But he also is saying that in the, the, uh, in the natural process of the way capitalism works and what it produces and that the, 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 the co- sort of these are the consequences of these principles turned into massive wealth and productivity and inequalities are accompanied by these developments, right? And these developments themselves are pointed in only one direction, and that direction is uh, a revolutionary consciousness, which says, why should we acquiesce to all this misery when in fact we're the ones who are driving all the productivity? And that revolutionary consciousness then says that socialist economy is the one that makes sense. It's actually rational right? So for Marx there's, a, there's, there's actually a narrative arc that's necessary. there's, uh, there's a, um, a, a story that starts I and mean, it starts all the way back, but really it starts with feudalism, which uh, has a particular political philosophy associated with it, which is really the capital the excuse me not the capitalist, the conservative, uh, um, political philosophy, which only develops overtly after liberalism, but feudalism is essentially supported by the concepts of tradition and uh, social hierarchy um, and sort of uh, uh, the stable communities uh, and lack of ambition to make, to make uh, innovations. It's replaced by capitalism, which is relentlessly innovative and tears down traditional social ties, and capitalism as, a, as an economic foundation is accompanied by an ideological superstructure, which is liberalism, both political and economic liberalism, um, the, and that's necessary. It's necessary for, for a liberal democratic state to arise, to protect capitalist rights so that these principles of, of economic decision making can obtain, so that the massive wealth and productivity can be produced, um, and so that all the conditions of the revolution consciousness can be attained, but mostly so that productivity can be produced. This, the productive preconditions is really important so that when we actually have to siphon off a ton, somewhere between a quarter and a third of social resources, to do the central planning that will create, that will liberate people from toil, that we there's actually enough productivity to sustain that, right? So a socialist economy is only sustainable, it can only achieve this goal once it's passed through capitalism, uh, a massive uh, uh, uptick in productivity. When there's enough to go around, more than enough to go around, the relentless innovation and growth in productivity that happens from uh, these principles being uh, followed is no longer necessary. Right? It's not necessary for capitalism to go on endlessly, uh, hungrily, insatiably gobbling up natural resources and creating greater uh, greater, level of misery, greater and greater levels of misery. In fact, it can't. It, it, it has to be sowing the seeds of its own destruction. Now, a couple of things happened historically that don't fit this, um, and one of them is that the, uh, as I mentioned already, the, the socialist revolution, the political revolution, comes where there's a revolutionary opportunity, not where there's actually massive wealth already, massive capitalist wealth, and this great level of, of misery uh, and urbanization. In fact, the, the places the places where the uh, socialist revolution comes are way behind on any of this stuff, right? In fact, part of one of the things that's that's so horrible in in uh, Russia, is that there haven't been the loosening of social ties, and so when uh, Lenin and then Stalin uh, um, take power, they need to move things around, they need to, they need to, in order to do central planning, you have to move people around, you have to change the way uh, these traditional practices are being done, and what that ends up doing, and this is particularly acute in China, where there was very little, there was almost no loosening of traditional, traditional social ties, but it's true also in Russia, is that the displacement that's necessary to achieve this, when this hasn't happened organically requires uh, massive violence and genocide and the death and the enslavement of millions of people and that's exactly what happens when you skip, I mean I shouldn't say exactly, that's one of the things that happens when you skip this step. Um, the, uh, so the socialist revolution happened where there was a revolutionary opportunity, not the inevitable sowing the seeds of its own destruction. The other Uh, development that occurs that actually protects capitalism from the inevitability of this cycle, this story that lands us here um, is uh, uh, this actually, I'm going to erase that because that is misleading. Um, What stops this is, and I, I think this is maybe one of the greatest historical ideas, what stops this is to a certain extent Marx and Marxist analysis itself which is to say that what Marx does by analyzing the contradictions and irrationality of the capitalist system is gives pro-capitalists a set of intellectual tools and a set of uh, um, well-developed scientific tools for understanding how to preserve capitalism, these principles, right, without going down this inevitable cycle of escalating political violence, and of generating greater and greater conditions that are gonna to lead to a revolutionary consciousness. Um, part of what happens is that, is that the uh, pro-capitalists understand great, more, more uh, clearly that it takes a lot to maintain that false consciousness, that if revolutionary consciousness is coming, that a lot of cultural power needs to be exerted to, uh, c- to uphold that false consciousness. Um, and, you know, they, in the 19th century, they rely on religion, um, and, you know, Marx uh, calls religion the opiate of the masses, and the, the, it opiates people so that they basically continue to accept either the traditional ties that, that, that actually hold back capitalism and, and sustain feudalism, or just uh, sustain the notion of uh, um, the individual sovereign. Like, religion could be, there's a secular religion that upholds, in Marx's view, that upholds. Uh, um, uh, capitalism, which is uh, Enlightenment liberalism, that's that's a secular religion that is an opiate of the masses. It lies people into thinking that capitalist rights actually benefit uh, all of those people. So there's a cultural investment in maintaining that false consciousness because there's a, like, oh shit, the revolutionary consciousness is coming and it's a, there's a, there are a lot more, the math is easy, right? It's not complicated arithmetic. The math on the side of the immiserated, exploited working class uh, is it's on their side. Um, <clears throat> There's also a recognition that economic liberalism, in its starkest form, in its most laissez-faire form, in in its form of doing the least, and also of not letting there be any kind of leakage so that we can actually pursue some social goals in addition to protecting capitalist rights, that yes, that's correct that it's contributing to this this contradictory irrationality. It's producing this misery, and this misery is ultimately going to undo us. And so by being rational, the capitalist class learns from Marx's analysis of the irrationality and contradictory nature of capitalism in its purest form. And Marx himself in a way provides a, not overtly, but I think implicitly, a guidebook for pro-capitalists to file off the rougher edges of capitalism to reduce the production of, min- of misery, to slow down the widening inequality and actually even maybe reverse it a little bit and, uh, so, so that capitalism can continue to exploit and increase productivity without going down the dangerous road of creating a revolutionary consciousness. When Marx says, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, that implies to a pro-capitalist, it's like, ah, okay. So, yeah, that seems pretty convincing, but what if we give them something to lose? What if we give them enough of a share in this massive wealth and productivity? What if we throw some crumbs their way? We can slide some stuff off the big, laden table of productivity that we're feasting on, the capitalist class, and we'll still have one hell of a feast. And yet what we will do is we will essentially buy ourselves some security. And so there is this moderation of capitalism. You know, there's trust busting, there's uh, pro-consumer regulation. There, you know, there are more jobs or more, excuse me, roles are added to make sure that exchanges are free. There's, uh, you know, food inspection. There's labeling. Uh, there are things that make the workers' uh, condition less miserable. There's, you know, minimum wage. There are, you know, worker safety, child safety laws. All of the stuff that happens in the progressive era, in the Advanced capitalist countries in Germany, Great Britain, and the United States. It happens a little differently in each of those places, um, but it essentially what it does is it sees this this coming, and this is the real danger. And then, of course, they see these socialist political revolutions happening in places like Russia uh, and uh, China, and they're like, "Ooh, we also need to make sure we beef up our like make sure our political systems are stable because part of what was what happened, the reason why there were revolutionary opportunities in these Pre-capitalist agrarian societies like Russia and, and China is that the, the 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 state was unstable and weak and was essentially all you know it, it was it was a straw house that could easily be pushed over. It didn't take much huffing and puffing. Uh, Lenin and his cadre of revolutionary vanguard didn't have to do much huffing and puffing to blow down uh, the czarist monarchy. It was it was it was pretty. So the uh, to to jump to a three little pigs metaphor, uh, what pro-capitalist realized is like oh okay we need to make sure we have a brick house. And the brick house is the liberal democratic state. Uh, And let's make sure that workers also have a stake in the liberal democratic state, right? Let's let's really have voting rights. Let's really protect that. Let's really let the democratic system do some things that uh, fall outside the pure economically liberal concept of what the minimal state is going to do. Let's allow there to be a higher level of regulation to make sure that that people are actually experiencing the reality of free exchange. But also, let's have things like, you know, uh, know, pure food and drug laws. Let's have a social safety net like Social Security. Let's do, let's make a minimal investment in uh, society's satisfaction, uh, the vast majority of society's satisfaction. And what does happen? And it's not really intentional, right? I don't mean to, to, to imply that there's this conspiracy of capitalists, like 10 capitalists get together and they devise this plan. By being rational and self-interested and profit motive driven, long-term, they're like, okay, we'll, we won't resist. We won't maintain our, our uh, the, like requirement that the, the, the state be fully laissez-faire. We won't resist and some members of the, of the ruling class will actually implement policies that will soften the blow of capitalism for a lot of people and what does happen is a middle class develops and a middle class is a barrier against the revolutionary tide that Marx saw as inevitable that Lenin saw as inevitable but needed a little push that's what the revolutionary vanguard is for Um, so the the story that Marx tells it's a it's you know, for him, it's just a, uh, an unfolding of historical materialism and the necessary elements of these modes of production moving from one to the other, and what's going to happen is that we're going to end up here, um, and luckily, it's going to end up liberating us from uh, the human toil that has, that has uh, uh, characterized our entire relationship to the earth for thousands of years. Um, the pro-capitalists see this as a cautionary tale, and it can be avoided, this this, to them, horror story, because really, in the end, not only do they lose all their material wealth, you know, the idea really is that they just, they, they, get, they get killed. You have to kill the capitalist class, essentially, because they're not going to want to let go of their hold. Uh, they're like, ooh, that's, that's, that's scary, right? Marx tells a very scary bedtime story to the capitalist class, and they take it seriously. And over the course of several decades, really from the, about the 1880s through the 1930s, assemble the modern, pro-capitalist welfare state uh, and expand po- political the idea of political liberalism, expand the notion of what it means to be free, to include more positive liberty, more resources, so that it's no longer true that the workers of the world have nothing to lose but their chains. They actually have an awful lot to lose. Um, <clears throat> and when they look around, the visible wealth, they have some of it. And then also, they, it makes it easier to buy the cultural messages that sustain, sustain the false consciousness that there's real opportunity, right? Because my grandparents were toiling in a horrible factory and now I'm living in a middle-class suburb and so maybe my kids or even me or my grandkids, some version of, of uh, my lineage could end up being at the top of the pyramid. And so yeah, there really is opportunity and the idea of these capitalist rights actually being in service of our individual sovereignty, way easier to sustain that notion when you have uh, a middle class lifestyle. And it's, it, it's cost, it costs something to the capitalist class to essentially allow and support this small level of redistribution and the small level of using social wealth to make sure there's a buffer Against the development of a revolutionary consciousness. It's a cost, but in the long term uh, the it, it, it pays off because if capitalism gets overthrown, then you have no wealth in the future So so you can diminish your the profit motive uh, drives as well. We want to sustain our profit. Now, one thing that has also happened in the course of the history of uh, the, the capitalist West is that there has been a higher and lower level of rapacity of the, uh, or rapaciousness. I'm not sure which of those words is right. I think they might both be right. I think rapaciousness tells the story better. There's been a higher or lower, lower level of rapaciousness of the capitalist class. There's been a greater uh, tolerance of a high level of inequality and misery which increases the level of revolutionary risk, uh, and then what has happened is there's been a cycle. Then some, you know, somebody comes along and um, calls out for revolution, and then what that does is that wakes up the capitalist class to, oh yeah, we're letting the rapaciousness get a little out of control. We're, we're 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 creating too much misery. We're getting too greedy, right? We want to stay greedy, and if you're going to stay greedy and you're going to stay on top, you have to throw some crumbs. So. After a while you stop throwing the crumbs, the crumbs get more and more scarce for a lot of reasons. It's like, oh okay, now, we need to throw some more crumbs. So there are these sort of cycles of and they, they really do uh, map more to the to sort of the political cycles where this the, the sort of economic liberal, but with an addition of social welfare state, the social welfare state gets more or less uh, um, helpful in buffering the capitalist class against the the development of revolutionary consciousness. And so far, anyway, the capitalist class has uh, woken up before the revolutionary consciousness uh, arrives and said, oh, okay, whoops, we let too much inequality and misery. And again, I'm making it sound as though there's a committee of people who are making this decision. It's really not a conscious decision, it's just a recognition following these individual principles of Oh we oh, uh, yes, it's a good idea to accept a slightly higher level of taxation uh, of my profits if that's going to mean that uh, there's less chance of some kind of revolution or some kind of overthrow. Um, now, it may be that one of these times the capitalist class doesn't have the capacity to do this, doesn't wake up to this, and this story which has been averted uh, at least two or three different times in the last 150 years since Marx wrote um, will find its completion. Um, though I don't think there's any necessity in, in, in the fact that the revolutionary consciousness that we'll develop will develop will support a socialist economy. It could go anywhere, right? It could go to some kind of uh, um, other kind of uh, authoritarian system or it could go, I don't, I don't know where it could go, but so far... When the revolutionary consciousness has arisen in the in the capitalist uh, the core of the capitalist world, right, uh, the Western Europe and uh, North America, it has been averted. And where there has been a revolutionary consciousness that has produced this, it has largely been uh, at the fringes of the capitalist world, uh, in, in in what we can really think of as the pre-capitalist agrarian feudal uh, societies. So the Historical irony is one, Marxism, Leninism has never gotten, the socialist planned economy has never gotten a fair chance to show that this level of social input to producing uh, a uh, centrally planned uh, um, economy that takes from each according to their ability and gives each according to their need that can liberate, it's never really been given a fair shake at a high enough level of productivity, a post-capitalist level of productivity, and the other historical irony is that pointing out this inevitable revolutionary story gave a set of tools to the capitalist class to sustain, at least for now, and it's been a century plus, to sustain their, uh, their dominance and to make sure that what we have is mostly an economically liberal system in the West, and mostly a system of capitalism that is driven by these uh, principles of individual uh, endeavor. And mostly, we've allowed the massive wealth and productivity to continue rising while trying to keep the inequality and misery to like just below the threshold of where it ignites uh, revolutionary consciousness. But, you know... Just talking about Marx as an, uh, as a critic of uh, or as a, a person who critiques capitalism, the fundamental critique, and he, in this sense he was both right and wrong, is that it sows the seeds of its own destruction. But those seeds can be crushed or can be turned into something else uh, with, if capitalists, pro-capitalists, actually modify. What he saw was the increasing use of the liberal democratic state in a totally hypocritical manner to crush uh, the working class. And that was definitely done, right? There was an awful lot of that that was done during, in this country, the Gilded Age, the late 19th century, uh, from the 1860s until uh, 1900. There's an awful lot of of that. The government, particularly the US federal government, was implicated in uh, this sort of hypocritical use of a so-called liberal democratic society that was really just a pro-capitalist tool uh, there, there, was a, there was less of that and we have less or almost none of that now um, and what replaced that naked political violence and hypocrisy uh, that, vi- that went against liberal principles was an expanded concept of what liberalism uh, allows in a state, uh, in state activity that allows the state to, to chip away at that inequality and to, to, to take away s- just enough of that misery to make sure that the system can be Sustained, so that that I think is why Marx's critique didn't end up uh, uh, um, revealing that capitalism was going was in fact going to get destroyed and replaced by a socialist economy. It doesn't mean that his critique just because the revolutionary prophecy didn't come true, and just because there was that. Kind of uh, inappropriate uh, um, revolutionary consciousness developing in uh, places where there was a, a revolutionary opportunity, as opposed to the economic opportunity that Marx identified, doesn't mean that his analysis is actually less insightful. I think it actually shows that it's how insightful it is is that it could be used as a blueprint for for rescuing capitalism from its own contradictory and irrational nature. Whether that rescue is ultimately sustainable throughout human history, will remain to be seen, right? But um, I think that the ca- that, that Marxist critique shows that centering our entire economic organization around capitalist rights and these principles of, of uh, decision-making, productive decision-making, um, ca- is, it, it, it has two sides to it, and uh, ultimately that can be problematic. And so in order to not have capitalism destroy itself, that these principles have to be uh, um, moderated and other principles have to be added in. In order to rescue the capitalist system, capitalism has to transform itself just uh, slightly. That's still a critique of liberalism, because what it says is that liberalism doesn't actually tell the correct story. It still is an ideological superstructure that's, uh, that is intended to sustain the capitalist mode of production. It's just a little more fluid of an ideological superstructure. The story, the ideological superstructure evolves to protect the capitalist mode. Of production. It's still a critique because it's still saying that, yeah, you know, liberalism, this notion of the, of the sovereign individual, the notion of uh, the self-interested uh, rational decision-making, uh, that rights actually serve all people equally because they give us equal access to uh, our sovereignty, that that is all a sham. And that the capitalist system is, in fact, not really serving everybody. Because if you just focus on this, which is what pro-capitalist economy philosophers do, they say, it's the most productive uh, economic system in human history. Yeah, it sure is, that's correct. No, and Marx is not denying that. Um, it's, but that you can't, Marxism, you also can't ignore this side. Um, the liberal picture of uh, the political system and the economic system is, uh, has uh, only part of the story. And so I think that the Marxist critique of uh, capitalism is pretty insightful and relevant even in this day. The political prophecy that this story will complete to this direction, I think, at this point, is it's pretty clear that that, that hasn't happened. I'm definitely not going to make a prediction that it can't happen in the future. And, and there are still those who have the revolutionary consciousness, who are trying to spread that revolutionary consciousness, who are trying to fight what they would consider to be the, capitalist, the liberal capitalist false consciousness, that capitalist rights and individual rights are the highest form of respecting the integrity of the kinds of beings that we are. Um, but the uh, the even now when we have massive inequality in the world that we have and we have a widening uh, weight, uh, wealth gap that looks a lot like the late 19th century uh, when these first revolutionary movements uh, got going and when Marxism seemed the most convincing that capitalism was sowing the seeds of its own destruction. Um, I, I just don't know if uh, the Essentially, the backup rationality of the ruling class won't be able to find a way to do what has been done several times, which is avert this part of the story by moderating the way that the contradictions and irrationalities of capitalism play out. That the, um, the, the toiling class will be given, again, enough to make sure that it has something to lose uh, by... Uh, um, having a revolution. And the productivity of society in, in the early 21st century is so much greater than the productivity of society in the early 20th century, when the first crumbs were thrown off the table to, to help create this middle class buffer, that I think there's plenty of crumbs to be thrown. Is, can the capitalist class actually, uh, without a committee of 10 people getting together in a room and saying, hey, yeah, you know, Dr. Moore's right, uh, we gotta do this shit, can it rescue itself yet again? I don't know, I can't, can't make that prediction. But so far, uh, Capitalism does seem, even if we acknowledge that it's not a natural system, it doesn't—it's not what liberalism portrays as the expression of uh, underlying human uh, um, impulses and desires for how we live our lives—that it still actually has a high level of sustainability to it, uh, and it's shown itself to be relatively resilient to the upsurge of potential revolutionary movements and to the threat posed by the revolutionary consciousness to the liberal capitalist, uh, what Marx would call false consciousness, and other people would call the correct consciousness. Liberals would call that the correct consciousness. All right, well, that's the Marxist-Leninist critique of liberalism, and we're gonna move on to fascism next. So until next time, I say, uh, yeah, I say goodbye.